I want you to bear with me. Uh, pray my voice just sticks with it after two field days and a swim team meet yesterday. I just got too emotionally involved. And uh, that with mixed with allergies, here we are. But I want to welcome you to our gathering today. If I don't know you, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. Man, I'm glad uh, that we uh, get to spend some time in worship uh, celebrating the greatness of God. And even as we move into the time in Hebrews today, we are going to be celebrating the same thing, the greatness of God. And man, it is good uh, to be together with God's people. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to Hebrews chapter 12, where today uh, we're going to finish this chapter with the same call to not turn back to the former things of Judaism, but rather to run the race of faith with unbounded joy and lives of deep worship. Actually, as I was studying this week, I, I read uh, that, that some scholars actually believe that, that the book of Hebrews was actually a sermon that was preached. And man, if you look at Hebrews, that's a long sermon to preach, right? Uh, like I, uh, on my notes here, this is my 20th sermon to preach from the book of Hebrews. And I know Jeremy's preached a lot as well, just breaking it down. But uh, this was a sermon uh, or a, a letter that was written and then probably read to uh, th- this group of, of uh, Jewish Christians. And, and what happens in chapter 12 is chapter 12 is actually probably the start uh, of the writer's conclusion. And what the writer is doing, he's beginning to tie together everything that, that has been worked through and walked through previously in the letter. And so today my goal uh, is to begin what I believe is really or really kind of continuing just tying that bow on as we close out 12 and get ready to move in uh, to our final chapter, chapter 13. But as we start our time, I, I, I want to just share something about myself and then why uh, I, I want to share that. And then we'll jump in because I, I want to tie it together with where uh, we're headed in the text today. And, and so I just want to say up front and just be honest. And some of you might agree. Some of you might disagree. I was going to take a poll, but I didn't want division to happen. And no, it's not Dr. Pepper versus Coke. We know who wins that one, uh, Dr. Pepper. Uh, but um, it is, uh, man, for me personally, I hate... And always have hated scary movies. Anybody with me? Like, hey man, yeah, they're like, yeah, like I, they're just eat man from the time I was a kid, I have not been able to handle them. But I will say this. There was a short season in junior high where I had to uh, keep up my blossoming uh, friend relationships that were growing. But also, uh, there was this moment in junior high where I had to impress uh, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, and so we would go to, in, in my hometown, we have a thing called the Cliff Tex Theater. Uh, fun fact, Cliff Tex is the longest running uh, theater in Texas. Uh, and so a little one screen theater, actually the first job I ever had, aside from working cattle, was uh, handing out popcorn in the fifth grade, which is actually way too much authority to give a fifth grader. Uh, because we actually, in this theater, we did the flashlight walking down the aisle thing to make sure people weren't smooching. And so you give that to a fifth grader, right? Like this is too much authority. Okay. I knew it. They knew it. Uh, but I was going to wield it. Uh, and so we would go there though. And, and I actually watched a couple of uh, horror movies. And I, man, I would go in trying to act tough and I would leave 
externally trying to act tough, but internally I would be in shambles and I wouldn't sleep for days and I would always think something was coming around the corner to get me. Uh, and I remember one of the first ones I ever watched was in 1999, a movie came out called The Sixth Sense. Anybody ever seen it? Bruce Willis, right? I see dead people. Uh, and I remember going to see that. And I, I, the, the one thing I, I remember is that for about 90% of the movie, my eyes were closed. Or at least just squinted really tight, right? And I'm so glad that it was dark in there so that my girlfriend at the time didn't make fun of me or think I wasn't macho at all, 74 pounds of me. Uh, but I, I remember being there and we get done and man, I, I get through it. And it wasn't until two years ago that, that I realized that I didn't even know what the movie was about. So there was a comedian that I follow named Nate Bargatze. He's a clean comedian. He's hilarious. And he tells this story about the sixth sense. And I'm watching him do this stand-up routine. And he says, yeah, you know, like one, I'm going to give away a spoiler here. If you haven't watched it, it's really old. Uh, and so I'm just give away the spoiler as well. But actually, Bruce Willis is, he's dead the whole movie. And that's the big spoiler. And whenever the, the comedian said it, I was like, what? I just thought he was could really see dead people. And so I go through that, but, but I realized it's because I just kept my eyes closed the whole time. I hated scary movies so much. But you see, the other problem that I have with scary movies in general is that the characters that are running from whatever monster, whatever murderer, or whatever haunting presence, they always respond in foolish ways that end up Getting them in precarious situations, do they not? You see, one of the most foolish things they do in these types of movies is they go back to where the bad thing was. Like they know the room they just came out of, or they'll just see a dark room with cobwebs all over it, and they're like, hey, we could go to rescue, or that room looks good. And we're all sitting there like, don't do it. Do not go back in there. Right? Well, you know what happened previously, or you know what's going to happen. Don't do it. But nine times out of ten, if not ten times out of ten, the route of rescue can be right in front of them. And they decide in all their wisdom to go back the way they came that didn't work out well the first time through. And nearly all, if not all, suffer dearly for it. And today a similar argument is going to be made in the text. In truth, the argument given today is just another example of countless others that we've seen throughout our time in Hebrews, where the theme of don't turn back has been played out over and over and over again. The reason, according to Hebrews, is that the turn back to the tenets and worship of Judaism, while comfortable, will only lead to death and will cost you dearly in the end, every single time. But you see, as we enter into this text today, like the same holds true for us. This call to not turn back to our former uh, way of life and our former way of living and those things that we believe might bring comfort in the midst of temptation. Don't turn back because guess what? It will cost you dearly. Like when was the last time that that actually worked out? When was the last time you said to yourself, you know, I know that last time when I lost patience with my children and yelled at them in anger uh, that, that it didn't work out. But maybe this time when I lose my patience and yell in anger, it will. It doesn't. 
Or, or maybe, you know, for you today, it's like, you know, well, the last time that, that we watched that show, it had some things that maybe some language or some images or some scenes that, that really tempted me or brought me into a, a pattern of sin. But maybe the show's changed. Probably not. Maybe for you, it's just uh, other random things. Maybe, you know, uh, I know for me, for the longest time, it's like, maybe if I, well, I the, watching the news didn't work out last time, maybe it'll work out this time. It didn't. That we all have things in our lives where we think to ourselves, we're tempted to believe this lie that, well, I know it has never worked out, but maybe this time it will. Any of you feel that pull? The, the, the moment arises and you're like, I don't know. I think, I think it's going to happen this time. You see, the argument of Hebrews is don't turn back. And so they and we are to respond differently. We are to instead look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews says. But you see, here's the problem. What we know to be true of all of us is that even when we understand the good news of God's grace and giving us life and transforming our hearts, we are a people just like the people we read about all throughout Scripture who are prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it. And it's this threat to wonder, be it little besetting sins that seek to ensnare us or... In the case of Hebrews, apostasy, which is saying, man, I'm going to leave the, this faith I claim to have altogether and prove that I had no real faith in the first place. It's these things that the writer has and is going to continue to argue against. That, that's one thing I love about uh, the, the Hebrews is while, man, I feel like I'm doing gymnastics a lot of times in terms of just like the text. Man, it's consistent across the board. But that's God's word, Right. And so let me just give a, a quick recap from 12 because it, it, it's, it, it leads into and it's all been building upon where we're going today. So 12 begins with this call to run the race, right? Run the race. Run the race of faith. It never says it's going to be an easy race. It never says it's going to be a short race. Actually, I love the words of Eugene Peterson in his book. Man, it's that long obedience in the same direction. But run the race because guess what? The race is worth it. Like, it's worth it in the end. Run the race. And then it presents the question, how? And it answers that by saying, man, the, the way you run the race well, the way you finish well, is first you've got to cast off every hindrance or weight, even good things that, that are seeking to, to pull you away and weigh you down. Cast those hindrances aside. Cast off those weights so you can run well. Maybe it's not a hindrance. It could also be, man, cast off those specific sins in your life and in your heart that are seeking to entangle and snare and trip you up. Next, we're to heed the discipline of the Lord as a mark of His love. For discipline, and we've seen this the last two weeks, and the life of the believer is never punitive. Rather, it is always transformative for the purpose of bearing fruit, the fruit of righteousness. Therefore, keep running the race. We saw last week that in the midst of this call to holiness and, and running, that we are to encourage and exhort one another along the way. We need one another. 
All the while guarding yourself and pursuing holiness by God's grace. This leads us to the last example in the chapter, which is going to show the contrast between God's people in Exodus and Mount Sinai and the good news of the gospel that Jesus brought and we are to live in light of today. And so my goals today are these, that you would heed the warning that's presented, that you would see the goodness of the gospel in the text, and that you would be drawn to security, joy, and worship in light of who Jesus is. Ultimately, that you would leave here today At the end of chapter 12, the way chapter 12 started, that you would leave here and you would run. And so let's begin by reading verses 18 through 24. It says this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, so again, this is one of those Portions of text in Hebrews that if you read it without context or an understanding of the larger narrative of redemption, you can probably come away with more questions and confusion rather than purpose and hope. Because it starts off, it's talking about gloom and fire and darkness and a tempest and trumpets that are blaring louder and louder. And there's fear and there's, uh, man, if a beast touches it, it'll be stoned. And then you move in and it begins to talk about Jesus and, and things in the heavenly places. And you're like, what in the world is going on here? But you see, for the Jewish Christian reading this letter, this example would have drawn them immediately back to the stories found in Exodus 19. Along with the sobering reality of what came after. But you see, in the midst of the sobering reality, what we get in this text is we get the, we get the gospel message presented in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. So if you read Exodus 19, we're not going to go there, but if you go through Exodus 19, what happens in Exodus 19 is God tells Moses, he says, okay, it's time to gather the people of God to Mount Sinai. And what God says, he says, I and my, my presence is going to rest on the mountain and I'm going to give you the law, a law that you were to live by as a people who had been set apart to display the glory of God to the world around them. Now, now the thing about that is in God telling them, hey, get the people ready. This is not just, hey, tomorrow I'm coming. God really means business. What he's saying is, hey, they need to clean up. They need to make themselves holy. They need to consecrate themselves so that they are clean and not unclean. And the way they would do that is by washing themselves and making sure their clothes were washed and, and, and abstaining from certain practices so that they might be clean before God. And so what happens after a period of three days is that God shows up. And I don't know if you know this, but man, throughout Scripture, when God show God shows up, uh, one uh, theme presents itself all throughout as, man, uh, really kind of two. It's, there's, there's a lot of fear, <laughs> a healthy fear of who God is. But God shows up on the mountain. 
Exodus 19 describes it as a thick cloud covering Mount Sinai. That there's lightning, there's roaring thunder, there's fire, and the sounds of trumpets blasting. And it's not just that they blast. It's just that when the trumpets blast, it shakes. The mountain begins to shake. Now that could be from the trumpets blasting, but I also believe that what's happening in this moment is, if you can just imagine everything that is taking place, is that Mount Sinai is struggling to, 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 to hold and bear this, the weight of God's glory and holiness. And so it's shaking, it's reverberating through, through the mountain. And all this is taking place. And what we see in the story of Exodus 19 is that in this moment, God's people are met with a visible reality of God's holiness upon the mountain. And when it is displayed before them, all they do is tremble in fear. So much so that their response to Moses, they, they tell Moses, they say, hey, we're not going up there. You, you go up, but also, can God just speak to you and not us? We can't handle any more of it. You see, what they realize is although they had cleaned themselves up for the moment, God, when He reveals Himself upon the mountain, what they realize is that that God is unapproachable due to their sin. One commentator on this text said that the great problem with the trip to Sinai was that while men and women could come to see God's holiness and their sinfulness, the law that they would actually receive, provided no power for them to overcome their sin. You see, the truth is, is that all the law did was display to God's people over and over and over again that they had a deeper brokenness that no amount of external obedience could fix because in the end, they could not fix the problem of sin in their heart. Scripture actually says they were, that we all are dead in our trespasses and sins. and We cannot make ourselves alive. See, the same holds true today. We can't fix ourselves. And when we're met with the reality of God's holiness and our sinfulness, we really have two options. We keep trying to be better, to do better, and to hope for the better to work out for the best in the end. We keep saying, well, it didn't work that time, but maybe if I just try harder, it'll work this time. Or, We run to Jesus for salvation, life, and the freedom to actually live differently. See, this is what the writer is trying to get across in his argument here in the text. What he's saying is, you have not come to a mountain to be touched like Sinai. You see, Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, it could be physically touched. But as we see in the story, it brought with it death due to sin. You see, this is not the mount that we have come to, the writer states. You see, Mount Sinai is, is just like those places in the scary movie I talked about. Like, it's not a place, and what the writer is saying is saying, hey, yeah, now that you know Jesus, don't turn back to those things thinking that they're going to rescue you. He's the only rescue. Don't, don't go into those, those closets. Don't go into those places of darkness. Don't go to that sin anymore. Don't, don't turn from it. No, look to Jesus. Run back to Jesus. Turn to Jesus because Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. 
So let's look at this better place that Jesus brings us to beginning in verse 22. I've already read it, but I'm going to read it to you again. It begins with this. But you. I love that because it, that, that but you there is encompassing every follower of Christ. It's not just for those the letters being written to us. It's written to us as well. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what I want to do is I just want to break down what the writer's saying that we have access to in Christ. Because in the face of all life circumstances, I believe that the present reality laid out in these verses is so key to running the race before us. It says if the writer is saying, hey, run the race, but hey, remember along the way where you stand and, and, and what it's one day going to be. The now, not yet reality, the hope that we have in Christ. You see, the text says that we come to the city of God, Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem. You see, what we get here is a picture of the now, not yet reality of eternity with God. Because the writer says that as followers of Christ, guess what? Now we receive access to God. This present reality for us, it's not, man, I think growing up for so long, I believe, well, you just got to grit your teeth and bear it. No, he says the, Jesus says the kingdom's here. It's now. It's a present reality. He's making all things new. Yes, the fullness one day will be. And we long for it and look for that. But we now have access to God. You see, while those in Exodus 19 would have died if they touched the mountain, Jesus died for us so that we might have access to the presence of God now. Again, it's not one day. It's a now reality and a one day full experience. And I was met with that this week. Um, that now reality and the, and the longing and the, the hope for the one day full experience. Because guess what? Like in the midst of the now, uh, we all could say, man, there's still suffering and brokenness and heartache. And, 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 and like we're still like in running the race, like we're still dealing with a lot of things around us. The good news for us is we actually have hope. But this week, um, a, a, a pastor, a theologian named Tim Keller passed away. And if I'm going to think of people that I've read books about, read books by, and that have impacted my life, man, he's he's one of the big ones. I mean, if you're in men's equip right now, and even our women in women's equip, they've gone through what we call the pamphlet. It's about a 50-page little book that'll just Man, it'll wreck you. They're free out there if you want to grab one. Uh, but it's called the freedom of self-forgetfulness. And uh, he's had pancreatic cancer for years. He had it for years. And uh, he passed away a couple of days ago. But, but what he said, his son tweeted this out, that whenever he was getting moved to hospice, the day before he passed away, uh, he, he said, look, guys, I'm, I'm so grateful for the now that, that people have prayed for me. And the family has loved me and that they prayed for me. What he said, he said, man, I'm ready to see Jesus. He said, I'm ready to see Jesus. Then he says, I can't wait. 
And after he passed away, Haley texted me, and, and I, I told some people this, that I, I was painting at the ceilings on Friday, and, and I just painted and cried. Painted and cried. Not because of the loss, but because of the reality that man, he's experiencing the fullness. And I too, I, I hope it's not soon, like I, but like I'm ready to see Jesus. Like I'm ready. I can't wait. But you see, today we can set the now reality of the hope of the future. I love in the text, the actual tense that it lays it out with is, is it lays it out in the present tense. It says, you now have access. Like you now have this. Like it says that, that what it's presenting here is that in Christ we hold a permanent state in heavenly Jerusalem. Permanent. Now, I don't know about you, but like if you think about that reality, that, that should create some responses in our life. One, you have nothing to lose. Zero to lose in your life. You lose all your money, guess what? You still have nothing to lose. You lose your jobs. Man, it's sad and it's hard, but man, you still, ultimately you have nothing to lose. For these people being written, like you get thrown in prison, like, like that's their response. Like in prison, they're rejoicing. Like uh, you read the book of Acts, like they beat them and they sing praises and they're like, what are you doing? Because they understood that reality. We have nothing to lose. That's why Paul could say to live as Christ and to die as gain. Like, I have nothing to lose. But also, because we have nothing to lose and because of this reality, there's no need to turn back. No, there's no need to. What are you, what are you going back for? Run the race. Well, look how this is described. It says that this city is filled with a host of worshiping angels, thousands upon thousands, and they're in, in celebration garments. But it's not just that. We see that there's the fellow believers of old, but also it places us there as well. Because guess what? Today, even now, like we're not disconnected from the, 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 the reality of the, the big C church. Because guess what? We all do the same thing. We're all called to the same thing. To live lives of worship. To celebrate the reality of what Jesus has done. Which is why I loved it today. Like as we sang. Like we sang about the greatness of God. Guess what? Those that have come before us are celebrating the greatness of God. The angels and fellow believers of old and us today are worshiping God, who the text says is judge of all. You see, what we get is the reality of Mount Sinai met with the finished work of Christ. You see, God, who is judge of all and also says, like, because he hasn't changed from Exodus 19, like he is still the same. He says, vengeance is mine. In Hebrews 10, he says, man, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and not know him. You see, this again is the same God we see in Exodus 19. He is, wor- he is a worthy judge to be feared. But what we see in verse 24 is that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant that is sprinkled with blood that speaks a better word than Abel. 
than the blood of Abel. You see, what the writer shows us is that our access to God is made perfect through Christ who mediates a better covenant than Moses did as a mediator for God's people at Sinai because he was perfect. But also Jesus absorbed the full judgment of our sins so that we might approach the presence of God without fear of death for the shedding of his blood speaks a better word than Abel. If you don't know that story in Genesis 4 following the fall uh, uh, Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain gets jealous of his brother, Abel, and he kills him. And what happens is that God confronts Cain in his sin and Cain lies to God. God says, where's your brother Abel? He knows where he is. But he, he, Abel, or, uh, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Which the answer to that question is yes. So he lies to God, but God responds to Cain by saying, he says, no, no, Cain, your brother Abel's blood cries out from the ground. What, what is meant by this, and I believe what the writer is getting at, is that while Abel's blood cried out for vengeance and judgment, the blood of Christ cries out that we are forgiven because it is finished. The work has been finished. We are forgiven. We have been made right with God. We can have peace with God. This is the good news of the gospel for all who believe. J.D. Greer says that the gospel gives you God and all his blessings and all his promises as a gift. Not because you deserve them, because Christ has purchased them for you. And so as we hear that, what then are we to do in light of this glorious good news that has been, we've been presented with? Well, let's close out our time in 12 by looking at two responses the writer gives in light of what Christ has done. Beginning in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. All right, so in light of the good news, the good news that Christ has made a way for us to have access to God that brings life, not death and forgiveness, not judgment. The writer gives two responses here. The first of which is a warning to not refuse the good news of forgiveness that has been spoken to them. Well, what the writer is essentially saying here is this. Listen. Listen. Heed the words of the good news that, are being, that is being preached now. Don't uh, be like those of old that were met with the holiness of God. That, that, and yet turn from God to live their own lives. He says, man, if, if they were warned and it didn't work out well, man, just imagine you who have been warned from heaven. That's today is the day of salvation. Don't wait till tomorrow. One of my favorite quotes, J.C. Ryle. Tomorrow's the devil's day. Right. Satan doesn't care how much you read your Bible, how, how much you give, how much you serve, how much you worship, as long as you decide that you're going to do it tomorrow. 
He doesn't care if you give your life to Jesus, if you just say, well, I'll do it tomorrow, and then the next day say, I'm going to do it tomorrow, and the next day. No, he says, no, heed now. Today's the day. Don't wait. This warning is given depth and weight by the writer who points back to the shaking of Mount Sinai in Exodus. But then points to Haggai 2.6 where God promises that a greater shaking would come. For God will one day not only shake the earth but also the heavens. That meaning of that is explained in verse 27 where we see that God is once, will once more shake heaven and earth. And He does so so that He might separate that which is shaken from that which is not. Sorry. The shaken we see are anything or anyone that is not built upon the kingdom of God and its authoritative power and grace. Uh, Essentially what this means is that all who do not heed the call to repentance and grace will be shaken and ultimately cast away in the end. Therefore, the question we have to ask yourself is, are you heeding the call or are you refusing and ignoring the word? It's here. It's present. It's available. But on the other side of that, we have those that are not shaken. All who heed the call, turn from sin, receive the gift of grace that is new life in Christ. They will remain. The church will not be shaken. You see, this is the good news of hope for the follower of Christ. And it's in light of this hope that the writer gives our second act of response, which is to take heart. Don't be shaken And in turn, worship and reverence and all. You see, the reality for all made new and brought into the kingdom by the blood is that you ultimately cannot be shaken by anything because our hope is far too great. We have nothing to lose. Everything eternal is already taken care of. Therefore, we are to be grateful because we have a kingdom that can't be shaken, meaning that we have security in Christ and Christ alone. He is the author, perfecter, sustainer, securer, empower, and finisher of our faith. He was shaken for us and suffered that what we deserve so that we might not be shaken. What this does is it leads us to living lives of worship that are filled with reverence and awe. Because guess what? Again, God is a consuming fire. You see, as we sit in the reality of the gospel, our natural response is to worship. You see, our worship... When we do it, it keeps both mountains in view. On the one hand, we're met with the picture of Mount Sinai and realize God is holy and a righteous judge. And what that should do is that should present us with a healthy fear because on our own, guess what? That mountain is unapproachable. But you see, we also keep Zion, heavenly Jerusalem, in front of us as well. And we draw near because it it consumes us not with judgment, but love. It's approachable. Because it's covered by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, may we remember Sinai. But let us not be foolish and seek to turn back and believe that it will rescue us. When we have Jesus right in front of us. And so I'm going to have the team come back up. And really, as we think about these responses of worship, 
So we think about this response of, uh, of uh, wrestling with, man, have we believed the word or are we turning elsewhere? To the unbeliever, I'll say this. Today, I invite you to turn to Jesus. Who makes a way for us to be made right and be brought into the presence of God through his life, death and resurrection. There is no other way. But to the believer, I encourage you and exhort you in this. Do not turn back. Run the race. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Find hope in your security and live in unbounded joy and worship. This is our call. This is who we are to be as God's people. And so I'm going to invite you to respond in, in to that, but also in, in two acts. First, I'm going to have Nathan and Ryan come up and they're going to, um, they're going to be up here with communion. If you're a follower of Jesus and good standing with your local church, be it this church or another church, we want to invite you to come to the table today. But in coming to the table, we want you to remember and recall this good news and hope that you have in Christ of, that, that, that because of what Jesus did, in the allowing his body to be broken and his blood poured out, what we have is we see the, the costliness of grace. And so we don't take this just nonchalant. We take this with that in mind, celebrating and worshiping the Savior who was shaken for us, but came out in victory. Today, if you're not a believer, we'd ask that you abstain from that, not because we want to cast you to the side or point you out, because we believe that this is costly. But if you want to know more about what this means, you can come talk to myself or Jeremy or uh, uh, there's many people in this room that would willingly say, yes, come talk to me about who Jesus is. And we'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. And then secondly, we're going to worship. In reverence and all, we're going to worship the God who deserves all the glory and honor. And so I'm going to pray for us and then you can come forward and share in communion. Jesus. We thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you were shaken for us so that we might not be shaken by anything. And Lord, in light of that, may that, that, that uh, man, just penetrate the depths of our heart. But also may that uh, reality, may that change the way we view life and live. Because in light of what you have for us, in light of the now reality, but also what's coming, where we have nothing to lose. And so we thank you for that. May we celebrate that. May we worship. May we overflow with deep joy because of who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.